Welcome to Aesthetics Mastery, the podcast to help you thrive and raise the bar in your aesthetics practice. I'm Dr. Adam Chong. I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Dr. Tim Pierce is a GP, founder and director of SkinViva and SkinViva Training. Dr. Adam Chong is also a GP and a trainer and an aesthetic clinician at SkinViva. So Tim, it's been a few weeks since we've done a podcast. It's really nice to be yeah, back. Good to be back. And I've got a few different things I'd like to discuss today, but I just thought I'd a really brief uh, overview of some of the political talk that's been in the news um, on I think it was on ITV there was a, a bulletin about the government taking a bit more, bit more notice yeah got any comments on that so there's a Scottish MP who's decided to raise the topic in Parliament which is great and he's specifically asking for regulation um, and he's uh, understandably incredulous that that we have none and there is no regulation mm-hmm. for so anyone can can do the procedures that we do and there's no law against it and he's bouncing off a case which a lot of people know from social media of a girl who had quite a bad complication and was basically left out um, to sort herself out, which is often the way, um, particularly when it's an issue that's so time limited in terms of how long you've got to, to solve it. Um, it. It really is a danger to the public. So obviously we really support regulation, the sooner the better, and uh, it's back back up for debate. And hopefully it's one of the many things that I think are pointing in that direction, although nothing is certain yet. Um, hopefully, fingers crossed. Okay, so let's move on to uh, the topic of the day. So I thought we could discuss um, some issues related to botulinum toxin and some of the cautions. Um, this came about when I was I was teaching and I was talking about some of the contraindications and I thought, do I know enough in-depth science here to be really advising? Because when, when you look at the, the leaflets on Botox, for example, um, it actually just says, speak to your doctor if, and then it gives a, a list of a few things. So I thought we could maybe work our way down some of them, but actually using a question from the forum as well to, to in, introduce that sure. topic a bit more. So there's um, a lovely lady called Maria who who actually trained with me on the foundation. Um, she's got a, a successful clinic running now, but she did have a question the other day. So if I just read that out and then we can, we can work, work around that. So... Maria has said, she clinical expertise required. Can anyone direct me towards reading regarding Botox and MS? So that's multiple sclerosis. The story is a 50-year-old lady who's fit and well currently, but she's previously had three uh, attacks of multiple sclerosis. The first two presented as right-sided facial weakness. The second was sight loss in the right eye. This was 2009, so it's been 10 years pretty much since, since all these problems. Um, she takes antihistamines, no, no other medical problems. She's been under neurology for 10 years and she was discharged three years ago. So I think, I guess Maria's wanting to know there, what are our views on, on the safety and would, would you inject? Uh, so thinking about multiple sclerosis, it's a, it's a demyelinating condition. So you get inflammation and plaques in the central nervous system. So it, to me, it doesn't make sense that something acting on the peripheral nerves, which is Botox, ha- would have too much of an effect on, on multiple sclerosis. The only thing I can think of really is that you can get symptoms like diplopia, which is double vision, uh, blurry vision with like, as presenting features of MS. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual Botox itself and acetylcholine, how it works, I can't see how that would affect multiple sclerosis too much. And do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's that you've gone down the key the key route that any clinician should do, which is you, you try to work out from first principles mm. what the overlap could be. And there's an overlap in symptoms, as in you may have weakness somewhere. So that word weakness definitely correlates with, with Botox. So there's, there's an overlap in, in that domain, but 
but there may not be an overlap in the in the cause because weakness can be caused by all sorts of things. And but that's where essentially you get into what you've already hinted at, which is this complexity in terms of interpreting what's going on. Mm. And that is often a reason not to treat, or it's complexity in terms of management if something does go wrong is another reason why we don't treat. But pregnancy is a good example. Mm. Even if there's no relationship, why do an elective procedure when there's medical complexity? Yeah. So that's the kind of reason why you don't, you sometimes say not to treat even when there's no overlap. But, but I agree, if you look at how toxins work, we, we know what they do. They trim off a one receptor in the nerve terminal and that stops the message getting through there's nothing to do with the rest of the neuron really mm-hmm. that we know of <clears throat> there are there are other things that are being hypothesized but basically that's that's the mechanism we work with and, and i yeah. totally agree i would say that there's no clear overlap i don't think botox will make her ms worse um technically but maybe the overlap in symptoms could call, could be something to think about yeah so so that's the kind of domain that we that i would talk about the problem with the thing that would worry me is if um, this lady did then develop, uh, you know, blurred vision, then there's no way of proving whether it is the, the, the toxin or whether it's her MS. And that, like you say, that's when the complexity comes in. Yeah. So and, you, and responsibility and anxiety and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. it's worth, the, the good thing is just having the conversation can protect you from a lot, a lot of that. Mm-hmm. As in you can, you can explain that to her at the start. And mostly people are... I, I've, I've never heard of a case of people confusing MS with a Botox side effect, but yeah, yeah you should definitely have the discussion so that it's on the radar. Okay. Um, so good consent and um, a, an informed discussion about that, perhaps agreeing, um, making your client know there is a lot of uncertainty around it, seeing seeing what they, how they would view that. Yeah. Okay. So ultimately, Maria, you, you potentially could treat, it depends how how you feel about complexity yeah. um, and how stable the illness is how well she is if it's just just in terms of the stability thing if it's just been diagnosed and she's anxious and she's trying to mm-hmm. get control back in her life and maybe thinks that controlling her appearance will help with that it actually may not be a good time because what if you it's always that thing of what if you get a side effect at a bad time yeah it's better to do most changes when other, when other things are stable so that's the kind of conversation i'd have but it certainly wouldn't be along the lines of there's no interaction, so there's an, I can definitely treat you. I, I do think there's no interaction, yeah. but there is a, there's a complexity. Yeah, yeah, That would be the message. The other thing is that we do use, well, not we, but um, specialists do use a botulinum toxin for spasticity. I think it's bladder spasticity and general muscle spasticity. So clearly Botox is safe to use and it's actually therapeutic in mm. MS for certain things. So yeah, and I that, think it's reassuring yeah. to tell patients as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, so that takes me down to some of the other things on the list. I'll get my list out in a second. But one of the other ones is uh, Lambert-Eaton syndrome. Um, so that's another neuromuscular condition. So it's apparently autoimmune-related, and you, you do get a lack of acetylcholine released at the neuromuscular junction with this, so you get weakness of the muscles. So alarm bells ring a bit for me there, weakness, um, Botox. So... Um, there was a paper that I managed to find from 1989, which reported... So there, there isn't much literature around safety. So despite it saying it on the leaf, I can't find very much. But there's this one paper which there was a lady who had just minute doses. I think it was for blepharospasm. Um, and what that did, it unmasked generalized weakness. And then this was repeatable. They did it at least two or three times. And then she had the test and they found that she had Lambert-Eaton syndrome. Mm. So I thought that was quite interesting. I don't think we'll find many clients coming in with this condition certainly if 
Um, I don't think it's something I'm going to add to my questioning. So are you having generalized weakness and things? But as long as we take a specific history. The other interesting thing about Lambert-Eaton was that about 50-60% of cases there is an underlying malignancy. So generally there probably would be some other symptoms in the history related yeah. to that. So that, that's interesting. So that, I think that that probably has been added to the leaflet because there's such a clear overlap in where the mechanism of, of action of Botox is and where the mechanism of action or the patho pathogenesis of that disease. Yeah. So um, similar also with myasthenia gravis, really similar to, to Lambert-Eaton. Yeah. And then you've got Parkinson's, which is not at all similar, but it does affect facial movements. Mm -hmm. So um, these are the these are the Bell's palsy as well. Can yeah. you can anything that's affecting weakness? That's the complexity. Is that you may be what you think is a small difference makes a big difference. And mm -hmm. really, from a st an aesthetic point of view, that's the key thing. Is that you're not in control of all the variables mm -hmm. as you normally are. So your small dose causes something else. It's actually not like it's. I think sometimes people worry if it's contraindicated. Like if I inject someone who's got Lambert-Eaton syndrome, then I'm, all sorts of chaos will break out. It's not, you're just going to have more of an effect than you wanted. And that case nicely demonstrates what happens, which is she gets a, an unmasking of symptoms. Mm. But then just like Botox always does, it wears off and you go back to what you were before, which is reassuring that actually very few of our treatments actually have a medical, um, like a complication as such. It's just, it's excessive weakness. Mm -hmm. And as long as it doesn't affect a functioning organ, which in aesthetics is rare, um, like swallowing, then you're, you're probably yeah. fine. Well... One of the other things that it says, consult your doctor if, uh, was regarding glaucoma. And I really couldn't see why this was the case. Um, so I've, I've had a little look into that as well. So glaucoma, for those of you that are not familiar with the condition, there's, there's two types. But the one we were, we're worrying about in this case is acute angle glauco glaucoma, which is the more serious version. You get an increased production of um, like the fluid in the eye, aqueous humor it's called, and also a reduced outflow. So it's quite complex. It's to do with something called the anterior chamber of the eye. I'm not going to go into detail probably because I will not get it correct. Um, so, but on a very basic level, um, there've been a few cases where Botox has actually caused midriasis, which is dilation of the pupil. Uh, and that is one of the things that affects the outflow of this, this fluid in the eye. So if you've restricted the outflow, the pressure goes up and up and up, and then you can get symptoms such as visual loss, severe pain. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting. I don't tend to ever ask people about things like glaucoma. And I probably have had a few patients, probably with the chronic sort, but it's certainly something that's going to be more on my radar now. I wasn't aware that Botox could cause dilation of the pupil. I mean, mm. is, something, is it something you've come across before? Um, I hadn't thought about it. It makes sense that it could. The, the question, as we were talking about before we came on, is is how what by what mechanism is that toxin getting into the eye is this an intravascular injection or is it a just a drop because i mean occasionally it does splash when you're doing a, a procedure yeah um yeah because i've always told people if that happens it's fine there's nothing to worry about yeah and i have as well and uh <laughs> do we now need to say as long as your patient doesn't have acute angle closure glaucoma really you need to run a little experiment where you just drop like a couple of drops of botox into one of your eyes and see if it's uh, <laughs> yeah i'm free at lunchtime if you want to <laughs> give it because a go you don't have glaucoma yeah yeah. Um, but yeah, that's. I mean, it, it's interesting. It makes sense that it would because I'm sure those are acetylcholine receptors, and um, yeah, it, it has an effect. I, I don't know how strong it is, and how likely it is that that would happen, even if just by dropping. Because I imagine the vast majority would be washed out of your eye quite quickly. Mm. Um, 
so who knows it must be there'll be a dose and a place where you can achieve that result yeah. um, but I don't know again I think both of these cases that I brought up were um, Botox for blepharospasm so obviously much near closer to the eye than we we tend to go but um, just interesting and I think it's it's it shows the importance of always like um, improving your knowledge CPD basically have you have you ever looked at the doses for because like we Blepharo. trained an ophthalmologist who was telling me about the doses they use for blepharospasm and where they inject? Because right. obviously, in our in our course, we're going continuously going on about how to reduce the chance of getting it near the orbit. Mm. And 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 he was saying it's really funny hearing you guys really panicking about the doses and how close you are because we will stick five units right like underneath the eyebrow, okay. um, much higher doses. And and I was like, well, are you getting doses every week? He said, not really. It's kind of like one in a hundred. So okay. um, and that is basically I'd because you. Yeah. Go on, sorry. It's it. it's basically because of the position of it. You're, you're in orbicularis oculi. You're just you're you're not you're not perforating the orbital membrane and getting mm-hmm. into the orbit, which is what causes atosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we talk about it so often, and he was a bit amused by this because <laughs> it's like, yeah, we, I inject there, and it's fine. That's my friend Nick. <laughs> we're talking about laughing at us. But I would argue that atosis rate of one in a hundred one percent is actually high for aesthetics. So it's very mm-hmm. different, I think, when you're going in for a medical. Thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I would feel way less guilty. I think in that situation, causing atosis. Yeah. Whereas people, I think, coming to us are obviously a lot more concerned as appearance, and so it would be a, it would be a disaster for us in comparison, wouldn't it? Yeah. No, it's definitely. I think it's an important point there, which is worth thinking about, which is that the you're balancing the risks in a different way. I mean, the whole point. It's almost like you you completely nullify the reason to do the treatment if you make someone look worse. Like yeah. everything was pointless. Yeah. Um, whereas you can say from a medical perspective, you know, if you look a bit odd, but we solved your blepharospasm and still achieved something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So we've probably got time just to cover a couple more questions. Um, so one, one that's been asked on the forum, do you have any tips on how to communicate complications to clients, both in the consultations and how to manage their and our anxieties while dealing with the issue? whatever it may be i think we've probably covered this several times but it's no harm in yeah it's interesting i'm sure i'll say it differently each time Mm. but um well why don't you i feel like asking you a question how do you you approach that this was definitely something very relevant to me when i started training and we used to talk about this quite a lot especially my own anxieties and how not to portray them um i think one thing is to stand tall with your shoulders back and, and look confident and that really goes a long way because if you really physically look like you're anxious your client definitely will be more anxious so even if you're putting on a show i think just start to teach yourself to do that the confidence will soon come with experience Mm. but i think your posture and how you're talking is probably the first thing and i still notice the the procedures where i've done less of and i'm less confident i think i probably sell less and perform less than the ones that i've done thousands of now because Mm. there must be a subconscious thing i'm giving away yeah so that no, the interesting thing is if you if you if you listen to one of the top people like top of the industry people can send someone they do not hold back, mm. um, and it and but they do it with a gravitas that makes you also think that they're in control of it. That's yeah. what I think is going on. Like yeah, there's yeah. a and when you're new and you feel uncontrolled when you say tosis and you haven't got in your head the five different ways you're going to avoid ptosis and exactly how you will treat it if it happens. You you it's like you're going there and you think. God, I hope that doesn't happen because I have no idea how to deal with that. Yeah. I mean, you may know it factually, but you've never you've never gone down that route before. 
So, um, so that looks awful. But, but you should take solace from the fact that you don't actually, because some people don't want to be too graphic because they're, they're scared of frightening their client. And partly they're also frightening themselves. The way around that is what, what I constantly realize is firstly to start to get your own algorithm sorted out so that you know what to do even if the worst does happen. You feel better that, that way already. But, um, but also to realize that it doesn't actually scare patients so long as you have an answer about what you would do. And I actually use it. Mm. I think we've spoken about this before. Use it mm. as a chance to practice what you actually would do. So there's a chance of blocking a blood vessel. So what I'll do is after the procedure, I will check capillary refill. You just say that so that they, firstly, their anxiety is, is closed off because you've already got one thing you're going to do to make sure it hasn't happened. And secondly, you're also telling yourself what you need to do to make it safer. And even if there was a blockage, I've got the reversing agent and I, would, I could do a you know, quick allergy test and then inject it and dissolve it. So you're almost training yourself to think through the process. And what it also does for your patient is it takes away the anxiety. You'll, you would have seen this on the foundation course as well when newbies consent. It's horrific. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's terrifying. And they'll just <laughs> casually drop in. You might go blind. You might die. Um, you might have an allergy. You might have a headache. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> it's um, true. Especially the blindness thing. That it like literally has been as, as blunt as that. And you might go blind. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa stop. Because you see the, the, the client's face at that point just drop. And, and that is precisely because they don't have an algorithm in yes. their mind. They only have one fact. So the, the way to consent more appropriately is to build your knowledge so that you have an algorithm in your own head of what you're going to do and avoid how you're going to avoid it. And then you build that into your consent process because it says... Yes, it's dangerous, but I know how to reduce the risk. And even if it does happen, I've got an answer. That, that's what you're trying to get to without obviously lying, because that obviously sounds like you can solve all problems. But you, you need to, that comes from really thinking through what you would do in each situation. So mm. I'd say if you're nervous about consenting people, write down what the problem is, how you have built into your te- technique to reduce the risk of that problem, and what you will do if it does happen, and build that into what you explain to patients. And you will come across like an expert because you're on the way to becoming an expert as opposed to just listing all the terrible things and then leaving them hanging like a threat with no other explanation, which is, I think, what happens when you first start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the way I also phrase when I talk, I find blindness one of the hardest things, or I did find it the hardest thing to talk about for, for obvious reasons, but knowing a few statistics so you can say how many cases there have been in the world. And then also sometimes people find that hard to put into context, but I sometimes say when you take a medication, prescribed by your GP there's probably more chance of you ha- having anaphylaxis to that than going blind from this so every time we do something there are risks mm-hmm. that's why we're explaining this but the risks are very small and yeah so there's a great um thing which I need to look up again it, I can't really, is, is it the risk per million statistics so it's like mm. it tells you what how many miles you have to walk before you're likely to get run over by a car and, oh, and how many point. cigarettes you smoke and basically and you can break down every every risk into discrete components I can't, i'm not i'm not describing it very well but there's essentially like that your risk of dying of if you smoke one cigarette like it goes up by a, a very specific tangible amount uh-huh. and then you can start to compare that with other risks and kind of relate your your desire to go cycling on the weekend with your fear of going sky skydiving mm. and realizing that they're actually quite similar risks. Yeah. Um. If you do the if you cycle every weekend and you only skydive once, so um, it's really helpful to try and be rational um with that. Um, uh-huh. I must look it up. Maybe we'll talk about it on an, on another podcast because it's it's a very interesting way of looking at the world and our brains are not good at it. Mm. We don't assess risk that way. We're very emotional, mm. so it can help it. Yeah, that would be interesting to hear more about that. Have we got time for one more question? Yeah. 
uh, there are two more, but I think the one's about tear troughs and cannulas, and I think that's probably we'll leave that for another one, uh, another podcast. So the last one then is how can I reduce bruising, particularly in the lips? Is it depth related or certain areas of the lip to avoid? Something that we've probably covered again in other podcasts, but we can we can go over this again. So I have a few thoughts, and then I'll, I'll let you add a few more. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'll, but- Firstly, it's amazing the detail you can bring this into, but it's uh, yeah, th- why don't you, you start telling us the kind of things that you do to reduce bleeding? Because I definitely remember when I started that yeah. I used to have lots more bruising and I used to think that was normal. So just you can definitely get better at this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, you tell us a little bit about... So my thoughts. thoughts were, first of all, LMX cream, lidocaine, as far as I'm aware, causes a bit of vasodilation. So um, some of the people that have come to train here um, that have come to give us some training, I, I remember, didn't use any LMX. Um, I think there is a bit of a psycholo- psychological element with clients. If they're very nervous and they say you're nervous, they're going to want more numbing cream. If you're super confident and you just get on with it, I think numbing cream probably doesn't make that much difference. So there is a question as to whether you could argue LMX might might make um, reduce bruising if you're not using it. And also using ice, which would cause vasoconstriction, so reduce the size of the vessels. So two things there in relation to preparation. Then the other things I was thinking is needle size. So as much as possible, I tried to use a 30 gauge, even if it's something like Ultra 3, slightly thicker product. Um, being gentle, um, I, I do think there's something, because sometimes I, I find that a delegate will cause a bruise and I haven't, and I think it's purely technique and how fast they've gone into the into the mucosa there. Looking for veins, and I think this is one that's quite easily easy to forget. But if you've got an obvious vein there, and you're just being a bit lazy because you're running late or whatever, then then that could cause it. Um, and last thing I'd like to say is that I, because I had one recently uh, on the lip, which really surprised me because I don't often get much bruising, but I held on for two minutes because I saw a nasty bruise was coming and I held and I didn't look, you know, I didn't have that temptation to look um, and it actually turned out to be tiny in the mm. end. So I think that's another key thing. If you do get uh, some bleeding or a bruise that's appearing, compress and hold yeah, it yeah. there for ages. Yeah, I haven't had this for a long time, but I remember that awful feeling when you, you pull out, you turn around to go and do something else, come back and there's already a hematoma there. Mm. Oh, it's awful. Um, and because you're dead right, if you hold it, you can normally stop it turning into something massive. So yeah. holding is probably the best thing to do once you've caused a bruise. Because um, it doesn't always bleed as well with the things like the hematomas or the bruising. It doesn't, the moment you take your needle out, you don't see this spurt of blood or anything. Yeah. I think sometimes it's a few seconds. Yeah, yeah. There's like, definitely, um, I've, I've seen that. It's almost, I think in lips in particular, you, I've noticed that, that you pull out, it looks fine. And it's like five seconds later, suddenly there's a little little gush. Yeah. Um, Yes, it's it's not a nice moment when that happens. So take care when you're pulling out. Yeah, um, Tim's motto. Yeah, the, the other thing is, um, I was thinking like trying to break this down to really into fundamental first principles is you just try and inject a little bit less often because, you know, the, particularly these tenting techniques where mm. you see people going in sometimes ten times on one side of the lip and then ten times on the other, mm. and it's it's almost like the more times you enter, the better in that type of extreme yeah. technique. Um, that's the easiest way to re- halve your chances of a bruise is to halve the number of injections, and it's actually quite easy when you make that one of your goals. So you can enter through one point, you can fan. We, I mean, I covered this in much more detail on the Lip Masters course, the video series, but you can if you make it your goal, it becomes quite obvious. I can actually put the filler in very similar places without making more entry points. Mm-hmm. Um, depth is definitely important. I think a lot of people go slightly deeper than certainly than I did when I first um, 
I, I was deeper when I first started. And now you've got to hone that skill. You've got to really focus on particularly good quality products. You can't necessarily do it with very volumizing fillers. But if you're near mm. the Vermilion border, you're also very close to branches of the superior um, labial, labial artery. Mm-hmm. And if you go underneath the muscle or close to it, you're going to get a much bigger bruise than if you're hitting little capillaries higher up. So depth mm-hmm. is important. Um, control um, generally. So you you you'll know this from training. Some people have a natural control, and others are, are just they just it's like they have coarser movements and they're rougher. And it's nothing to do. I mean, sometimes it's surgeons who just happen to be a little bit more macro in their movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and you 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 need to you need to slow everything down and do everything slowly and try and imagine you're you know it really helps if you're when you're nervous and you realize this and you don't want to bruise and you start to really fine-tune everything and make it slower and more deliberate and more controlled and get the right the depths right then you can you can definitely make a big difference there are all sorts of things with your client as well hot summer days are always awful mm. someone's just been to the gym before they come yeah um anything <laughs> where there's more blood in the skin yeah um hot flushes all those things you can't always control them but but you'll notice that on a hot day bruising's worse in yeah. the summer it's always like you, your appointments take longer because every time you pull the needle out they're just bleeding yeah so um so maybe also, ice ice in summer would be a good thing for all yeah. our clients cold shower on the way in yeah <laughs> <laughs> um I could go on and on because you can break these things down into all sorts of detail. Like, obviously, you've got your medical risks. If someone's taking warfarin and aspirin, that's going to affect it. Yeah. Um, some people think drinking alcohol. I think that's also due to vasodilation. That yeah. It causes- I think I see a correlation. Even just with Botox, when I get the bleeders, I tend to ask them, how much wine did you have last night? And invariably, it's, oh, can you tell? Like, yeah. Yep. I was trying to figure out why that would be, though, because obviously I, th- I always thought it came from, you know, I used to work on a liverboard and they all have they have blood clotting problems because they're a liver failure. But obviously a glass of wine doesn't do that. And yeah. the half-life of fibrinogen is much longer than one glass of wine or even a box of wine the night before would affect it. A box of wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh-huh. Some people like to drink it by the box. Yeah, they do, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so the only reason, the only way I can think that it could affect it would be I thought maybe the breakdown products of alcohol, aldehydes, make do cause vasodilation, and that maybe it's like part of being hungover that you have this. I remember noticing on a friend of mine at uni years ago that he was always a different colour if he'd been drinking. He was just red. Was this Daniel Chong? <laughs> <laughs> Could have been, yeah. No, it actually wasn't in this case, but yeah, um, I imagine he was more on the night out go red. Yeah. <laughs> but if you, um, but but yeah certainly and I'm always wondering this I didn't I don't know whether he had carbon monoxide poisoning from all the cigarettes <laughs> he'd been smoking as well but it was it there was definitely something about the color of your skin that was different and I yeah. and I can only imagine that's a byproduct of breaking down alcohol um, and maybe that's where maybe that's why but because the other thing I've always not liked about accusing the patient of drinking is that we all probably the average person will have drunk something in the last three days and uh, and. It's you're only asking them if they've been drinking because they're bruised and it and yeah. then it's like but it might have been because you stuck the needle straight into their cephalic vein <laughs> yeah true i tend to make it quite light-hearted and it also gives me a bit of an excuse if there is a nasty bruise i put it back on them yeah <laughs> no, but that's probably the wrong way to address so <laughs> so so at the end when you've got a massive bruise you just you just kind of put the cotton swab over and pull off and said well i suppose you've learned your lesson now. yeah <laughs> you're alcoholic yeah no, um, right. So we've probably covered quite a few different things there yep. in relation to bruising. Yeah. Right. I think that wraps up today's podcast. Okay. And 
next time uh, we may discuss a little bit more in depth about um, tear troughs um, in relation to cannulas and pain and things like that. Um, and perhaps, Tim, I'd like to talk to you about some of your experiments with aspirating that you've just been doing yeah. in different needle sizes. So we had some fun aspirating cannulas, needles, uh, 31 gauge, 30, 27 gauge, and uh, got some really surprising results, which I'll share later. It wasn't what I was expecting. Mm, interesting. I look forward to it. Thanks for listening. Okay. Bye-bye.